Are you a fire instructor or training officer eager to elevate your career? Inside the Modern Fire Instructor Pro Membership, you can leap beyond department limitations. Inside MFI Pro, you'll immerse yourself with monthly expert-led training, live bi-weekly Zoom Q&As, and an exclusive community of like-minded peers. You'll also have 24-7 access to our extensive and purpose-built resource library to help you stay ahead of your peers. Ready to ignite your full potential? To learn more, click the link in the show notes or head to trymfi.com. That's trymfi.com to begin your journey right now with a seven-day free trial. And when you sign up, make sure to use coupon code PODCAST to receive 40% off your monthly membership forever when you decide to stay. Secure your future, invest in yourself, and invest in MFI Pro at trymfi.com. Now back to the show. Welcome to the Modern Fire Instructor Podcast, where we tap into the wisdom of experienced professionals on topics like fire training, leadership, and learning. I'm your host, Rob Campbell. Join me as we uncover actionable insights that you can use to grow your skills as an instructor, make you more effective, and help you leave a lasting impact on those you serve. Today, my guest is Fire Chief Jim Silvernail, who has 25 years of experience and is currently serving for the Kirkwood, Missouri Fire Department. He has a Master of Arts in Human Resources Management, a Bachelor of Arts in Business Administration, and is an Executive Fire Officer. He is the author of Suburban Fire Tactics, the co-author of Suburban Fire Tactics from the Right Seat video, and serves on both the Fire Engineering and FDIC Advisory Boards. Inside today's episode... Recognizing the limitations of a non-traditional response model, game planning for successful suburban truck ops, how circumstance dictates action, the AAR as a strategic training tool, and adding staffing in the training division. Let's get curious and dive in. Welcome to the show, Jim. Thanks for having me, Rob. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you here today, and I'm looking forward to having this conversation about uh, truck company ops in the suburban environment. And before we get started, specifically talking about the suburban environment. I wonder if we could just back up to um, the traditional roles and responsibilities of a truck, just to kind of set the the background and the context for um, that traditional model. Absolutely. So, you know, the way that a lot of the urban departments are set up, or even some, you know, that aren't as urban, but traditionally East Coast will have uh, an engine that primarily does all um, anything that has to do with water, you know, flowing lines, uh, connecting the standpipes, uh, backup lines, um, water, water supply traditionally has to do with engines. And then the truck next to it that traditionally has a big ladder on top is, can be called a truck company that has every other function that doesn't involve flowing water. Um, a lot of times, you know, the, the acronym that's used in a lot of these books is lovers you which is laddering, um, overhaul, ventilation, uh, forceful entry, uh, rescue, salvage, uh, utilities, everything that doesn't have uh, anything to do with the flowing of water uh, really is a truck company operation that supplements and really completes the coordinated fire attack. Okay. And so what about uh, purpose? I mean, um, if this is a traditional model, what's the purpose of you think of keeping those two functions separate or specialized in a traditional model? 
So I will, I will be honest, it is the most effective model that's out there because it allows you to have expertise in those certain um, functions within the fire ground. You know, if, if all you're doing every day is flowing water and deploying hand lines and you do it um, every fire, you're going to get very good at it. Uh, but if all you're doing is forcing entry, doing searches, laddering, um, and you become an expert at it because you're doing it every day, I think it's the most effective model. However, as you know, there's an efficiency problem with that. I'm sure we're going to get into that here sl- shortly. But like I said, it, it is the most efficient or effective model there is out there. Okay, so I figured that's what you would say. And I just kind of, like I said, I want to set the context for what I consider to be kind of an ideal scenario. An engine and a truck responded out of the same house together, arriving at the fire at the same time or in close proximity to one another and having uh, firefighters step off in a specialized role that they perform every day or every fire. So how or what should a coordinated fire attack look like? If you're operating in that ideal scenario where you have an engine and a truck pull up first due to a um to a, a, say, a residential structure fire. And we hear a lot of talk about the importance of coordination of fire attack with ventilation and and other truck functions. What should an ideal fire attack look like? What should it sound like when it's coordinated properly? I'm glad you said that, Rob. So, you know, a lot of times when we go back and we think about the coordinated fire attack, everybody associates it with ventilation, but there's so much more involved. Um, you know, I look at the fire ground as a systematic, it's almost like an orchestra. There's so many functions that you have to break down that go into, um, the perfect fire attack or the most safe, effective and efficient fire attack. And those are the three elements that we're looking for safe, effective and efficient. Um, you know, it starts off with, and it goes back to strategy too. Um, we have to locate, contain, confine, and then extinguish the fire. And there's so much involved in that. You know, when the, when the engine company gets there, you know, they, if they can't get in the front door, how do they get inside? They have to have forceful entry. Or how do they get, you know, access to uh, upper levels? They have to ladder. Um, and then, you know, there are parts of the actual ventilation aspect and the fire attack. Um, but, you know, the, the location aspect of it, who locates fire, who locates uh, civilians in those systems when we go inside these structures? It's going to be the truck companies who go ahead of the of the host teams looking for not only civilians, but also fire. I mean, we take that for granted so many times in our fire attack. Um, But not only that, but it's also the coordination, uh, like I said, of the ventilation. Um, And if you, if you're a student of any of the UL research that's going on, the coordination of those activities is precise. It's not as simply as I'm going to go break some windows, get a little lift, and then my team can go inside. It It almost should happen. Um, simultaneously for the correct option. And also, a lot of times the way we do it is wrong because we'll go and we'll attack and then we ventilate, which, yes, we're removing smoke, but really, are you ventilating to help your fire attack? Are you really ventilating to help your civilians out? I mean, I always tell when I'm teaching, hold your breath. You know, if you hold your breath, that's what your civilians or your, 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 your victims are doing inside. They're holding their breath. They don't have air. It's our job to get it as quick as possible. So all these functions have to go together to get that that coordinated fire attack. Um, you know, for example, you know, we take the fire location, I, I think, for granted a lot. And that's one of the things we miss. Um, but, you know, not every fire presents itself. Uh, a lot of times you're going to have to go find it in a wall. You're going to have to go find it in a ceiling member. 
how do you do that? You, well, you don't do it with the tip of the nozzle. It has to be with a tool beside you. Therefore, the coordination of these activities are really what puts fire out. And earlier in that answer, you said something about taking for granted the uh, function of the truck searching for victims. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? How, how are we taking that for granted? What did you mean by well, that? Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you, be honest. Um, a lot of times we go to fires and, you know, I, I always use when I, I always use this example, nine out of 10 times, nine out of 10 times we go to fires, you put the fire out, there's nobody trapped because nobody really wants to be in a fire, do they? They want to get out. And so, but the, there's that 10th time and we take it for granted because what do we, what are we really here for? Sure. We're here to protect property, but what's the number one thing we do? save lives. Life. And sometimes, you know, we, we find the fire, we think we're going to put the fire out. That's all there is. And, and the search is taken for granted. The search is absolutely the number one thing we should always take in consideration. Um, and then it also goes, it's not only searching for the victims, but it's also searching for conditions and the fire with inside. Not every fire we have presents itself. Um, some of the, some of the, my most memorable experiences, a fire captain as a firefighter, um, wasn't really engine company operations. It was that hunt down the hallway. There is nothing in the world like hunting in front of that, that hose line, looking for not only victims, but also finding the fire, going back and telling the engine crew, Hey, we found the fire. It's upstairs. It's in the left or it's in the, the right hallway, you know, down, down the stairwell. That by far, I, I don't think we can take that for granted. You know, like I said, our priorities are to locate, contain, confine, and extinguish. But a lot of times we, 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 we take location totally for granted. Okay, so let's get into some of the challenges then. I mean, we've painted the picture of an ideal scenario. We've got an engine and a truck responding in close proximity to one another. We've got firefighters stepping off that are specialized in specific functions. And then we have good coordination between those two uh, apparatus and those functions. That's in the ideal world. So let's talk a little bit about you. You mentioned that that's ideal. Let's talk about the reality. What, what what do you think? Can you give a percentage? I mean, how frequent is it to uh, be in a uh, a response model that has an engine and a truck working together? I, I know from my own experience that, as we were, I shared with you earlier, five stations, and one of those stations has a quint, and everything's cross staffed. So there, there really is no specialization. It's more of a generalization. But that's just my experience. I'm curious what your thoughts are about how prevalent is the traditional model. I wish I could give you an exact percentage. I just do not have one. And I do not know if those percentages are actually out there. But I can tell you uh, from my travels around this country, talking to different fire departments, you and I are in the majority. Uh, the, minor the minority are these large cities that have the truck and the engines. And even some of your larger urban environments, such as my counterpart here in St. Louis, they've gotten away from the traditional models. And uh, to truly have a double engine house where you have two companies is really rare. Um, even in the city of St. Louis, where um, each district really only has one truck company. And some of those sometimes because of brownouts are by themselves. Um, and, and truly, how many of those actually are, are pumpless? Um, I can tell you that some of these 100-foot hook and ladders actually have pumps on them because of what I just described. But to answer your question, in our suburban markets, it is truly typical to have what we have and that you have a system where you have a quint in a firehouse, which we can describe here in a second because everybody you know, wants to know what a quint is. If you don't, I mean, everyone uses them, but really do we know what they truly are? Um, we have engines. We have these things uh, that are 
somewhat called squads because they have a lot of heavy rescue equipment on an engine company. Uh, but that, that's truly typically what we see um, throughout the country. If I would have to guess, I would say 80% of the world, if not 85% of the world, operate the same way we do. Okay, so um, what are the challenges that come with that? Well, let's back up. What, why would we move away from the ideal? What's, what's driving the, do you think, is driving the move from a specialization to more of what sounds like a, a generalization across multiple kinds of apparatus? That's an easy answer. As a fire chief, I can tell you it's money. Um, I thought I was I throwing you a softball, chief. You are throwing me a softball. Um, and believe me, I, it's not up to me either. It's the people who pay our bills that make that right. decision. But remember, I told you that there's three basic qualifications for any type of policy procedure or fire ground activity, and that is safe, effective, and efficient. Um, we try to do things as efficient as possible. Um, because we don't have the fire volume um, in our suburban markets, our rural markets, it's hard to justify staffing both pieces of apparatus out of, out of one engine house, uh, especially if you turn one fire every two weeks, one fire every month, it, it's perceived as is just really inefficient. Um, but I do want to get back to that term here in a minute too, the inefficient inefficiency versus effectiveness. Cause I think that a lot of times we have perceived efficiencies and really we don't because we don't have a game plan. But um, to answer your question, it's all about money and it's all about our daily uh, run activities uh, and, and really justifying having both those apparatuses. So one of the things that attracted me to your your book, um, Suburban Fire Tactics, and this topic was your recognition of deficiencies. And um, I think that's an important um, thing that I'm not sure how common it is. I would like to get in that conversation with you to, to figure out how well cities and jurisdictions are at how, how, how good of a job they do at recognizing the reality of deficiencies that come with economic efficiencies. So on paper, it may look very like a very um, palatable move, right? Because it makes sense. We don't have that many fires. We can use smaller amounts of staff to do to cross man multiple pieces of apparatus. And on paper, that all pencils out very efficiently. But how well do jurisdictions do typically, would you say, at acknowledging the real life fire ground challenges and sometimes deficiencies that come with that decision? You know, I really think that uh, a lot of us miss a lot of aspects of the firefighting. Um, you know, when you when you go back to it, you know, it's all about, you know, we talk about size up. We look at all these books about size up. And, you know, you ask the question, when does size up start? And this is, I'm getting to your answer here, but the answer is, you know, it starts way before the fire actually occurs. You have to be honest with yourself. And there's three major aspects that you look at. Staffing, resources, and response area characteristics. Um, are you realistic in your staffing approach? Are you realistic in your resource approach? For example, if you're staffing a three-person engine company and you've got a standard operating guideline that states that every time they're responsible for the first new line and then the second comes in with the same and they're responsible for another line, but yet you can't make the stretch because if you really analyze what you have, you have a two-person stretch 
going into, you know, a house that you could be going above grade, below grade, or you're going into commercial. Um, you know, I stated before, nine out of 10 times, we can justify poor tactics with success because we are starting to get normalized and crappy tactics that, that make it work, if that makes sense. So two persons, uh, two people on a, on a, on a, on a hose line going in the front door can hit room and contents on that fire floor. No problem. Nine out of 10 times we're successful. But what happens when I throw you that curveball and all of a sudden now you got variables such as above floor, below floor, uh, force monetary rescue. And all of a sudden you're like, Holy cow, I, I don't have what I thought I had. You know, now it's like, well, what does the ideal hose line look like? I always start with what does our ideal hose line look like? It's really a nozzle, a backup boss off to the side. And, and a coroner's person. That's a five-person engine company. Unless you work for the FDNY, you don't have that. So why are you pulling a second line off? I know why you're pulling a second line off, because you have to. It's called a backup line. But really, why are you deferring that to the second due when really they should be bolstering that first due line? And, you know, we, we miss that a lot. You know, we, we don't look because because we're saying, I've got the most efficient engine companies in the world. Because I'm the fire protection, you know, we're all made to be heroes, but really you got to go back and really look at, at you know, uh, how, how are you being effective? Yeah, I love that answer. Um, the, I think I heard Aaron Fields say that, you know, there's sometimes there's a tendency to um, say, well, the, all the, the fire went out, all fires go out, but did it go out well? Right. How efficient were you on the fire ground and dovetail that with what you said earlier, nine times out of 10, it's not a big deal. Right. Right. Normally when a building catches on fire, people leave. And so that is more normal than the, than the, the opposite, which is there's somebody in there that we need to go get. And, um, the complacency that can come with thinking that, because we're efficient on paper, it pencils outright that we can simply show up and um, have similar efficiencies without that specialization and that there's something that needs to happen. And so let's talk a little bit about that. What are the specific challenges that come with a non-traditional model when we're going to put uh, three person, let's just work with three person engine companies and no specialization. So there is no dedicated truck coming. What are some of the specific challenges that come with that operating model? Okay. The first challenge is, do you have a playbook? Do you have a game plan for that model? You know, when I, if I responded in an urban area and I'm on a ladder company or truck company, I know exactly what I'm doing. I know if I'm first, I'm getting the fire floor. I know exactly what duties are on the fire floor if I'm the second two truck company, I know I'm going above and I know what my, my task list is for the second two. But if I'm in this system where I've got six pieces of apparatus and they're just called arriving apparatus, which means it doesn't matter what's on top that gives you your functionality on the fire ground, then you truly have to make a game plan. Who's doing the truck work? Like I said, at three o'clock in the morning and you realize that there's no true dedicated truck companies and you guess, well, how's the truck work getting done? Okay. If you don't have a game plan, you're going to probably fail because the time where the battalion chief or whoever's an incident commander gets on the scene and goes through the checklists, those are too late in a coordinated fire attack. These are things that have to be coordinated in the front right seats of these apparatus 
to understand which functions go next to support the initial actions. So the first thing I would tell you is you got to have a game plan. You have, a, have to have a standard operating guideline or whatever you call it. I'm not a lawyer. I just want you to have a game plan. Have a game plan uh, that works, okay, um, for your organization. And it has to be analyzed constantly to make sure it works for your organization. Two, I really think is expertise. Um, you've got to have the expertise in being a jack of all trades, which means that training field has got to analyze all your efficiency or your efficiencies and your weaknesses and to make sure that you can cat you can capture those weaknesses and do them well. What are some big weaknesses? I'll tell you right now, forceful entry laddering. These are things that we hit all the time on the training, you know, in the training field because we know that we don't do them every day and we, we've got to catch up with that that um that skill. Um, and two is attitude, attitude and culture. Um, a lot of us in these suburban markets don't want to hear that word truck because, you know, they're like, we don't, we're not big cities. Why would you think that we do truck work? We're not a big city. We don't have trucks. Why, why are you using this big fancy language? Well, you do do truck work. I'm sorry. You do it every fire. It's just how well you do it on every fire. And you got to get in this mindset. Hey, just because I have an apparatus that has a hose and a pump and water, I might not be using that today. I might be getting off and actually doing duties that support other people's hose lines. And that's, that's, I think that, that's interesting. Can I interrupt for a minute? Because I want to ask yeah, about yeah, that absolutely. attitude. Why do you think that? How does that happen? How would how do you how does that attitude um, establish itself that we don't do truck work? Because everybody thinking of the lovers you acronym, all those jobs have to get done, and engines have ladders on them. And they've got tools on them. Where does that attitude come from that, that we don't do truck work? We're not a big city. I, I really think that it has a cultural attitude where you got to get it in uh, and start it from the leadership down and understand the importance of every functionality on your fire ground. You know, look at the fire ground. It's not simply, and I, I always make fun of my cop friends, but I'm like, there's a lot more to firefighting to put in the wet stuff on the red stuff. There's actually a strategy here. There's functions that go on simultaneously. But, you know, one of the biggest one of the one of the um, the big points that I make is uh, when you develop a standard operating guideline, you have to look at the action that makes the biggest impact on your fire ground. And what is that action? It's the hose line. We water. know this. We know that putting water on fire puts out your problem. It, it starts helping. You know, it helps us. It even helps us with the rescue process. But what gets that water in place? You know, the right time. When is the right time? It's ASAP, the right size hose line and the right place. Well, two of those functions are truck company functions. The right time is the push. You know, sometimes those engine companies need help with the push. It, it, they might need help with the, with the uh, you know, the ventilation or the flow path. Uh, they might have help with, the, you know, forceful entry, gaining access. That's part of the speed. Um, the right place is, once again, the uh, finding the location. Uh, which is considered a truck company function. But you have to impress it upon your people that these functions fit within the game plan. Um, and it has to start with your training, you know, cadre. It has to start with your training officer. And it has to go all the way down to your company officers to understand that these are essential functions that have to be mastered. Um, I tell people all the time, I can tell your, your professionalism. When I look at your apparatus and I see your forceful entry tools either have either aren't together, they're in the wrong spot, they're not accessible, or you don't know how to use them. I mean, that's the very first thing that shows your professionalism. And let me make a point real quick. 
professionalism is not a paycheck. It's your expertise and your training. I could care less. The fire does not care if you're getting paid or not. It burns the same, you know, heat release rates. It'll hurt you just as bad. Uh, paycheck matters not. I wonder if in lieu of a clear game plan, if the agency hasn't done the work to establish capabilities and limitations and hasn't developed a game plan for how they're going to deliver non-specialized or a non-traditional response model, if there's a danger of inadvertently promoting this attitude that we don't do truck work, because what the message, if we're not careful, the message that can be sent is we don't need dedicated truck staffing. We're just going to we're going to take, look how efficient we are. We're going to take these firefighters and we're going to spread them across the city. We're going to put them across multiple types of apparatus in a single house. And, and because you're so good at your job, you guys are going to do just fine. You're not going to need that, that dedicated truck. And so I think, I wonder if that attitude isn't also, nobody wants to admit that we're hamstrung in the operation, right? That, that we're, we've been given the tools that aren't quite as effective as if we had the dedicated truck, but we're going to make the best of it. And that's part of our culture, right? That's part of our ethos is that uh, if somebody doesn't know how to solve it, we'll solve it, give it to us. But then it comes back to that idea of, yeah, all fires go out, but do they go out well, right? Are we putting in, do we have the resources and do we have the training that's in place so that we can make sure that we actually have efficiencies on the fire ground? Does that make sense? Absolutely. And, And, you know, I think one of the prime examples that you're talking about is the Quint fire apparatus. Um, I can tell you right now, when you come to my class or you listen to me speak, you'll think at first that I hate the Quint. I don't. I think it's a very effective tool within our system. We have to use it. It's the only way we're going to have a ladder on our fire ground because I'm never going to have double engine companies. But I want to tell you, and this goes back to my example of effective versus efficient. I can give you a Quint all day long and you can call it efficiency, but it's not effective if you don't have a game plan. And let me explain. I've seen, I've seen departments who have transitioned to the Quint without a game plan. One, they don't understand how it works in your standard operating guideline. Uh, for example, the, the apparatus does not define the company. And typically with a three-person or four, even four-person engine company, you can't split it because there's really only one inside um, company that's able to, to solve the problems. So, you know, you have to have the ability to understand that that's one crew. You don't split them. And it depends on the prioritization of function of how they arrive that that their assignment on the fire ground. So, you know, that's one of the misunderstandings is, hey, I split it. They're both an engine and, and, a, and a truck on the scene. No, that's not accurate. The chauffeur of that apparatus still has to think like a ladder company chauffeur position with the ladder. Because remember, you can you can stretch hose. You can't stretch ladders. But you got to get the mindset that you can't split the crew. Secondly. Um, I get this thought all the time. Well, you know, I'm very upset. We got rid of our truck, our ladder company. You shouldn't be upset at that. You, you lost 25 foot of ladder. Yes, I understand that's, that's going to handicap you. What you should really be upset at is that you just lost uh, the, the tactical abilities of an engine company because quints do not have the same hose beds as engine companies at all. And you lost a lot of mobility. You no longer can you reverse out. And some people don't. Re- some of our young kids don't even know what that is anymore, mm. but you don't have the courtyard stretches set up. You don't have the skid loads set up. So unless you have a game plan for that, which we can make it work, but it's a huge training aspect, you're going to fail. Um, so, you know, th- that's the thing you have to realize in this system. There has to be a game plan. 
Talk more about not splitting the crews because where I'm from, that's that's common. We'll have um, it's not uncommon at all to see somebody split a crew. Can you just talk a little bit more about that? And are you talking about just don't split on a quint or splitting a straight engine company, a four man engine company? Okay, so you know, let's go back to really what a traditional. If you look at a traditional system, um, and I'll look at the ladder companies first. What you know, in the, in the typical. Uh, large cities such as New York or even some larger cities where they have six personnel on an apparatus, you will have an internal, you'll have an inside crew, which consists of the officer, the cans, firefighter, and the, the forceful entry. They'll be going inside, right? So they're, they're going into search. They're going into search for fire. They're searching for victims. They're also helping with forceful entry and ventilation concerns on that floor. Uh, now you still have two firefighters left. What do they do? Well, you got an outside vent that helps with the outside vent and a roof person. Now, let's go back to the way we do it. We throw three people on a piece of apparatus. You have two interior people, unless you deadhead the fire. And what I mean by deadhead is you leave the apparatus. Then you could have possibly have three. But typically, that engineer will have to stay or chauffeur will have to stay with that apparatus. So you have two people. Those people cannot be split, especially if you're going interior. They have to stay together. Now, if you're, if you're putting together a standard operating guideline uh, for, a res- for a residential structure fire, and we can get into commercial later. You really have to look at their effectiveness. So if I've got two people showing up on what I consider is my assigned truck work uh, company, I'm going to say, go to the fire floor, captain or lieutenant. And they're going to understand that they have a list to do, but they can only do so much on that fire floor with two people. Now I can't, I can't do those exterior, you know, um, functions. And that's why we have to really put more, you know, you can't just have one truck company on on an assignment now you're going to have to put more one or even two more depending on your situation to accomplish that all to account for the entire leverage you um same thing with an engine company you know an engine company i've seen sometimes you know in our world you know that we have ambulances and i have five people at my firehouse if i get a first due response i can send all five people as the initial response for that for that still area i don't want to see two lines coming off an apparatus because what did you do? Now you've got two lines with two people on it. Now you've got two hose lines fighting each other um, that are, is still less effective. I, I don't. I don't want that to happen. I want to have one effective push. I want to have one hose line because that first hose line makes the biggest impact on that fire ground. And if it doesn't, maybe you've got the wrong size hose line. Yeah. So I. I think um, we're talking about some deficiencies now that that have um, that are. Uh, coupled with this non-traditional model. So I guess the first step in my mind is recognizing that we, we, we can't do the same job that a traditional model can do if we don't have enough hands on the line or we don't have enough, we don't have enough people to do all of the different levers you tasks as well as assist with the push. So what's the, what, how does the fire department go about uh, being honest with itself and recognizing what it's capable with, with its staffing level. And then what do they do with that information? I am a huge advocate of the after action report, hot wash, whatever you call it. If you're not doing these at the, at, after every fire, you're really doing yourself a disservice. This is where you learn. This is where your training department gets their information on your deficiencies and what you're not doing at a fire ground. This is where the fire ground commander should really be going back and have an honest approach 
Yeah, and you and you hit it right on the head. Benchmark. The fire went out, nobody got hurt. Those aren't benchmarks. Those are situations that happen. I can tell you right now, I've never been on a fire that's still burning. Right. And I can tell you I've had fires that did not go well. And just because it's it, you know, we left we left foundations. That's not a benchmark. So, you know, you have to be back and you have to be honest. And it's not a simple high fives in the front yard. It's wow, we screwed up. And how do we fix that? Um, I, I think you have to go back every fire, find a benchmark, whether it's water on the fire. How long did it take to get water on the fire? How long did your searches take? Um, how effective were your stretches? And, and this is where the honesty approach really, you know, takes place. You know, we all want to be the FDNY. I'm not kidding. I, I'd love to work for the FDNY. I have friends in the FDNY, but we can't. We have to serve a civilian population in the areas we're at with the resources that we're giving. And, you know, you, you have to be honest with that and um, keep it safe, effective and efficient. That's my job is to keep my people safe, effective, efficient and to save all the civilians I can within my jurisdiction. Um, being dishonest with yourself doesn't solve that. Can you talk a little bit more about uh, give us some details about an effective after action program? Like who how should it be structured? No. Is it is it? Can they be done effectively um, over Zoom? Because I, I sometimes that's difficult, right, to get everybody together that was part of that. Um, I think a lot of people would agree. Most people would agree that 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 they're important and that they have value. But how do you do one that that you make sure that you're getting value out of it and not just checking a box? We we men talked about the fire. Yeah, I, I think that the there's so many different ways to do it. And there's so many different trains of thought. Um, you know, the, the way I really think is that there's got to be trust in that room. Um, you have to understand that the main principle for this is not discipline. Um, I, if you're going to get discipline, you're going to know it way before that, because if you didn't do your job, I'm going to let you know it way before the after action report, but the after action report has to have a level of trust. It has to have the people that are there it has to be open. I know a lot of times they suggest a third party come in and do it. Um, so there is an honesty. Uh, I, I still think that, there, that if you have a trust factor, you can still make it happen with the people that are there with the, the company officers, the, the chiefs that were on the scene um, to get get a real picture. Um, but you try to get everybody that was there and um, just go down to the, te- you know, have a have a systematic approach about it to really go through. Um, what did you do? What did you see? What did you what would you have done differently? You know, the whole start, stop, continue, I think, is a great aspect. You know, what, what would we that? stop doing? Yeah. So uh, start. I'm not familiar with that. Start, stop, continue. So there's there, there's a lot. There's a there's a start, stop, you know, find things that you need to stop doing. Find things mm-hmm. that, you know, what maybe we aren't doing to add to start. And there's good things that we are doing. Keep can continue that. Continue those practices. Um, you know, those are the things you look at and uh to to make it work on your fire ground so the after action is a place where you can learn about your agency's capabilities and limitations are there other methods to employ to determine where you where you're at as an agency your capabilities well i think too um you know you can look at um some of the models that are or you can look at some of our mandates out there and a PA 1710, for example, which will eventually turn into, I believe, 1750. And you can look, how, how compliant am I with those standards? Um, and I'll be honest, it's, it's very challenging for some of us. And, you know, the whole idea is not to say, oh, 1710 is evil. I'm the fire chief that can't meet it. We should throw that book away and never look that way. That's, that's incorrect. 
1710 is the guide that you want to try to to fit to to model yourself after. Um, you know that you can't deny to me that a three person edge company. Uh, or you can't deny that a four-person edge company is better than a three. It's not. I've, I've operated on, I've had the luxury of a four-person. And there's certain functions that you can bite off that you can't bite with a three-person. So it is something that you go for. But, you know, you look at it as a fire chief or as a, you know, even a company officer and say, hey, look, where are we, you know, are we close to this model? Are we meeting all the functionality that we're supposed to? Um, and if you can't, then you know what? You got, you got to, you got to step back and, 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 you know, how do I, how do I become adaptive in, in making this system work? Um, I'll tell you this, and I know that a lot of people don't want to hear it and it's not ideal, but, you know, we operate with three person companies, you know, but, but the way we do the three person companies, we can throw our ambulance in there, make a five because of that. Um, we get the full points for ISO for staffing, which, you know, it's, it, believe me, if I had the money today, I'd go to council and say, got to have four person companies today, all day long, six people at a firehouse. And I, I would fight for that, but I, I'm a realist too. I know that that, that's, that can't happen um, in the current climate we're in, but um, yeah, 1710 is a good one to look at. Yeah. I, I think that that's, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, not dismissing uh, the NFPA standard simply because it, it's difficult to reach and, and using that as a, as a, uh, um, a guide for what you're striving for. Let's talk about training for a minute. Um, you've mentioned that training can get information from the after actions to help address some of these deficiencies and create areas of focus for, for uh, specific functions to drill with. But just like a, a three man truck can't do the work of a six man truck, you know, or an engine isn't going to be a specialized at truck work if they're not dedicated to it. They're spending some of their time on an ambulance or spending their time on an engine. Oh, today we need truck work, you know. Uh, the training division has the same problem, I believe, in so many places, right? Tasked with tons of responsibility and tons of uh, work and probably not staffed the way they need to be staffed in order to, to, to do that. So the challenge in my experience has been how do you prioritize where you put your efforts? If you don't have the staffing you need in the training division, how do you develop a training program that can um, have a meaningful impact on improving truck functions for somebody in a non-traditional model? Do you have any thoughts or suggestions or ideas? I do. So we've had this problem, you know, since the beginning of time. Uh, you know, you have your mandates, you have to meet your NFPA mandates so you can get your ISO credits. Let me tell you something. I don't live my life just to satisfy a piece of paper. I want an effective firefighting force that is here to answer our mission. And that's, yeah, yes, we, we do try to re reach our requirements, but I got to tell you, how do you truly hit your mission? And the way we had it set up was, yes, we had a training chief. But then each shift had a training captain that would be a part of analyzing the daily operations, our daily fires or whenever we had a fire and to truly do a needs assessment. If you're not doing these assessments on your fire ground, like I said before, how are you going to find out your deficiencies? And after we did those needs, those needs assessments, that's where we would say we really need improvement on throwing ground ladders. We really need improvement on stretching hose lines 
the above floor, you know, large stretches, or we need forceful entry training. Go back to it. Hey, and you know what? If your monthly, you know, training calendar doesn't fit it, there's other ways to do it. Then you put it out as a company off as a as a company drill. Captains, get with your people. This is what you need to do. But this has got to be hit. We did not succeed at this last time out. And I, I think that hitting your deficiencies really starts with that that situational awareness. Yeah. Okay. So that sounds good. You gotta you gotta know what your deficiencies are. So in order to be able to develop that drill, you've got to know that you have a deficiency. Can you give us an example, kind of even if it's just a hypothetical, but of a needs assessment, you know, that a, let's say a shift captain that's, that's, um, he's, it sounds like you're talking about a way to kind of augment the training division with a, with a captain who is assigned to a shift, but he's kind of like the training captain of that shift. Does, do all those captains work together with the training division in some sort of formal way? Uh, do they meet? Do they put a game plan together? Are they working together as a team in some capacity outside of simply just being designated as the training captain? Yeah. So uh, our, my former agency, before I took this job here in Kirkwood, um, our station four was our training slash rescue uh, house. So those captains were, were the training officers. They were actually designated a formal role and they were put at the same engine house, but a special office just for training. Uh, we would meet, we'd have meetings together. Uh, to go over and then, you know, propose it to the, to the deputy chief of training or operations. Hey, this is what we're doing today, boss. How do you feel about this? Yes, I agree. Um, it wasn't just training either. I mean, we had a lot of impact on policies. So, um, you know, I'm sorry to interrupt, but what you're saying right there really resonates with me because, um, you can have a single captain on a shift that really is into training, but I think there's a lot of power when you can bring together like-minded folks across the shift. So if you have a captain, if they're all at the same house, it's a great idea. But if you can bring them together to get them unified, but then also I think in what you mentioned, enlisting the support of the training chief or the, the deputy chief of operations Get that, get your, get your plan blessed, right? So that it's like the, the agency is behind it. It's not just the gung-ho captain who has a vision and wants to do this, but the, the agency can throw their weight behind the vision. 100%. I mean, we, we all have those gung-ho officers on our apparatus. You know how it is. You show up one day and you're like, hey, why is this, uh, why, why, why is this nozzle changed? Well, I, I saw it at a conference. And I want to add it. Well, my my engineer didn't know that he was going to pump it at 100 psi when it's a you know it's a straight tip nozzle that would needs 50. I mean that this is these are examples of right. what we're talking about. So it has to be a group um, idea that comes together. Hey, yeah, we as a division want to try out a new nozzle. Super great, but let's do it on a consistent basis um, and, and institute it on a trial basis. And then the needs assessment, can you give us an example of what that might look like, um, either from something noticed in training or how, how, does a, how does a training officer do a needs assessment for his department? Okay, so, you know, there, there might be, really, they're just absolute. Um, so what, a lot of times, too, these, these needs assessments will happen um, when you have a, a, a training session, right? So this person is going to watch the training session. Let's go ahead and deploy. Um, let's 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 not let's not be closed minded. Let's not use a two hundred foot pre connect. 
let's deploy 300 foot of two and a half and, or three inch and let's add a hotel pack. Let's make, uh, you know, a courtyard stretch and you watch, right? And all of a sudden you've got people who are like, yeah, I think I know what I'm doing, but they're not grabbing the hood. You know, these are things that they're like, okay, noted. Let's go ahead and put, we need the help here. You need coordination efforts. Or another great one is throwing ladders. Hey, I haven't touched a ladder since, uh, you know, I got out of rookie school. That's not the answer. Um, you know, let's, let's just throw a ladder. Let's see how you throw that ladder. Are you proficient at the 24? Are you proficient at the, you know, the 28, the 35? Um, and then you mark these deficiencies and you, you come back and if it doesn't work, you come back and do it again. Uh, or you hit that, you know, again, down your, your training, um, platform, you know, a couple months from now, but you, you just keep going back to make sure, um, also company, you know, we have company drills here at my place now where we assess every year, um, we go over uh, company, we call them company standards just to see not only is it just the new guy, but it's also, is it the, uh, you know, the 10 year guy, the 10 year person, you know, are they still proficient in these, these skills that we don't do every day? Cause you know, we don't have fires every day in, in suburban right. America. We'd like to think we do, but we don't. I think that that's an important component is some sort of a regular evaluation component where you have an opportunity in the training division to have eyes on company evolutions to identify gaps and, and the value of 1710 can help you know where you're trying to get to. And when you can compare what you actually see on the drill ground or the fire ground and identify that gap, at least then now you know what you're working towards and yeah, having, so, go ahead. No, so what I, I was going to go back. So one of the greatest needs deficiencies that got me into this in the beginning was, you know, I was a young company officer. I was starting to get charged with, you know, helping out um, policy development or policy analyzation. And uh, we had one particular fire. And, it, and I don't like armchair quarterbacking, but, you know, we met together as a group to discuss the fire. But we had a basement fire, okay? And our, and our old standard operating guideline used to say, hey, the first dude gets a line. The second dude comes with a second line real quick. The third dude might start considering, you know, truck operations, if the, you know, being, and then the fourth gets another line. The problem was the first two not only had a five person crew because they had their ambulance, they pulled two lines off. The second dude got there, pulled another line off. And before the third dude even came across the scene, people were going through the floor, right? Now I'm going to ask you this. How easy is it to stretch into a basement with two, with, with an officer and an nozzle and a nozzle person fighting another company not knowing the conditions because you didn't really do a really good search for the fire ahead of you to understand where it's at. All of a sudden we're like, Hey, you know what? This was almost a tragedy. You know, it's unfortunate because going back to these deficiencies in this business, it's always tragedy that sets our policy and that's wrong. It should be, we should do these in needs analysis. You know, if you look at a, if you look at a department that throws a lot of ladders, why do they throw a lot of ladders? Because they had, you know, they had a member trapped above floor and either they were injured poor, badly or they were, you know, they, they had a fatality. Um, you know, why you, you see all these changes in what we do. Why did the RIT teams evolve? Because we were killing people inside. Things like that. I mean, that's what evolves in our business. But really, we, we got to do a better job at looking and see what's going on. And like I said, it, it all goes back to this fire for me. And when we changed our standard operating guideline. Um, then we started, we started doing a lot of analysis into what works for us with our system. Yeah. So we talked about the, um, recognizing deficiencies and we talked about the standards where we want to be. Um, so when we've recognized a gap, 
part of the answer is training to fill that gap, right? Develop those skills that, that uh, there may be some deficiencies. What if the deficiency is a lack of policy? That's more of an agency level thing. Talk to me about how an agency makes sure that they have that game plan that we opened up talking about, right? Because when you talk about the game plan, that's your standard op- operating guidelines, right? That's, right? that's a clear plan of attack for how we're going to approach this emergency. What if they have underdeveloped policies? How do, how do you um, solve that problem? I think it goes back to redesigning or reanalyzing your standard operating guideline, like I said. And you have to start at the basic level. You know, what is making the biggest impact on our fire ground? It's that first line off. What? So the first two officer gets there. They put their game plan in. They call their strategy. I'm going offensive with a line. You as incoming or, or, you know, the incoming apparatus that is on that alarm should be supporting that. So, you know, if you look back and like I said, the example I gave you, pull another line. Well, that doesn't support that. Yes, it's needed because we do need backup lines. But what supports that initial action? It's another crew, either it's water supply or it's truck company operations that support that. And the further you or, go down. Or, or more hands on the line. Yeah, 100%. Right? And just because yeah. we call you a truck company in our world doesn't mean your hand doesn't touch that line. Everybody's right. hand, everybody in our business is, is part of getting that line in place. That means putting your paw on it sometimes. But right. uh, so a prime example of a deficiency in that first do is four versus a three person engine company. Okay. So, and you think, well, you know, there's, there's so many differences, four versus three. I'll give you a tangible one. How do we do water supply? You know, in a world where we have three people on it, I'm going to tell you how we do it. We go straight into the fire and the second two gets the water and it, it, it can't, it shouldn't be always. Remember always is a bad word because there are times where even there's, you, you've gone to those fires where it, your booster tank's not going to make a hell of a difference in the world to hit the plug going in. But the reason why we don't stop, we don't stop at the hydrant first is because we've got three people. I need inside that structure quickly. There could be people in there. I can't drop somebody off at the hydrant with, you know, with the, with the, you know, large diameter hose. And then as the officer expect to get inside that house, I can't. So I defer the water supply and I have my two first do go, you know, I got a hand line that goes right under that front door and the second do gets it. Um, that's the difference between a three and a four. And that bumps that whole standard operating guideline back. Cause you know, if you're responding with four people on every apparatus, you might only need five pieces of apparatus on a structure fire. But in our world with sometimes three, sometimes it needs six just yeah. because, you know, you need, you need to get that first two line in place. You need two truck companies basically, or, and I'm not talking about the apparatus. I'm talking about the assignments and mm-hmm. you need a backup line. You need a writ team. So, you know, there's, there's a lot going on here. I just think the agency really um, needs to do that work ahead of time, right? We can't be having company officers making those decisions on an individual basis. That game plan needs to have been something that's been systematically developed um, for that specific um, agency, right? Their capabilities. Otherwise, you're really putting your officers in a bad spot because there's too much inconsistency from one officer to the next based on their own personal interpretation of what needs to be done or what the priority is that, that it's so critical. I think that that game plan gets developed um, ahead of time, because once the game plan's in place, everything's easier for the training division. It's clear what we're trying to hit 
now I can watch a fire or I can watch the drill on the drill ground. And how close are we to what we're saying we're going to do? And once you have that gap identified, you can break that down and say, okay, how do we solve that problem? And then get with your team of captains and put a plan together that's being implemented across the agency, not just one shift or one station. And you, you have an, a focused agency supported effort at a particular behavior, a particular skill, a particular function. Would you, does that, it's kind of me soapboxing a little bit, but. <laughs> no, I, I totally agree with you. You know, it's fire ground functions, you know, you, you need to be effective on a fire ground. You need really three things, right? You need a good plague book, whether you call it a POM, a SOG, I, I don't care. You need to have a, a playbook. Two, you have to have um, experienced company officers. And three, you have to have the right training. Um, obviously, the hardest one to get out of that is your experienced company officers. I can throw training at you all day long. I can pay for people to come in. Um, you know, you can get it on YouTube. I'd be careful, but you can get it on YouTube. Um, you know, and then the SOGs, if you don't think you're doing it correctly, call it a third party and to help you. But experienced company officers, we're not getting the fires like we used to. And we definitely are on not on a specialized piece of apparatus. And so, you know, I, you know, what's the answer? There is no answer. It's hypothetical because, you know, we're not getting, my dad was a fireman in the seventies. I'd hear we had fires every weekend. I'm like, Oh yeah, we're lucky to get them once a month, you know, in a suburban environment once or once every two weeks, maybe. But, um, you know, th those are the things that are needed, um, to really put this in play. And, and, and it goes back to the playbook too. You know, you got you need to know the difference in this in a standard operating guideline. You know, there's the positional standard operating guideline, which your position on the fire ground is dictated by the apparatus you arrive on. And it's a little easy. I wouldn't say it's easy, but it's easier. You know, if you're on an engine, you're going to be doing engine work. If you're on a, a thing that comes with a ladder or even a, a rescue company, you're you're doing rescue or truck work. Um, in a functional system, your function is dependent on your arrival order. And the, the prioritize, prioritized function or need um, for that time within the, um, the the game plan, you know, within that um, within that fire attack. And so the, it, it's so important it, to have a game plan for a functional system is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. So it, does that get into the circumstances dictate actions? One hundred percent. So circumstances dictate actions, you know, um, it's so important. If you've been doing this job for any, any amount of time, you will know that not every fire is the same. Um, there's so many different circumstances. I'm going to tell you, um, you know, I, I don't even consider myself a veteran at 25 years. I haven't even seen half of what's out there. Um, and then you got so many people that they're in that same boat. There's so many circumstances that will affect your rational decision-making on a fire ground. Um, one of the prime examples that I have is that, you know, we don't have a truck company beside us, right? So you're pulling up at a structure fire at 3 a.m. and you've got mom in the front yard yelling, my kid's up in this upstairs window. Okay. So now, you know, I don't get to make a decision. Hey, I'm going to pull a line. Well, I don't get the, the, um, the nicety of, I'm just pulling a line off because I'm an engine. I'm going inside. Now I have to think, what, do I go for the rescue or do I pull a line off? Well, once again, that's a, that's a, that's a tricky question because pulling the line off is rescue at some time, but there is a point in place for a vendor search. You know, if I've got fire blowing out, I've only got two people. I know there's a minimal amount of people up in that window. 
I know that, you know, I know exactly where they're at. I'm going to go get them and I'm going to call back. I'm going to, I'm going to call an audible as an officer. Once a big, once again, that's why experienced company officers are important. And the next dude's going to pull a handline off. But I'm going to tell you, it's very rare that you want to defer water. I mean, you really want water on that fire quickly. Remember, people are important. But I'll give you another case scenario. I got two people trapped upstairs. I don't know where they're at. Am I going to do a ventilator search? Absolutely not. Because now I'm doing blind sweeps. How realistic can I get two people out of there before that fire overcomes me? It's just these are circumstances that you have to know and in your decision-making process, not every, like I said, not every fire is the same. So here's a good one for you. So if you really are that guy or that person, that firefighter says veterinary search is the answer for everything. Uh, I'd say veterinary search is awesome. It's a great rescue technique, but it's not always for the first do. Go to your training ground, put your gear on, get ready to go. Put that 200 pound mannequin on the, on that training tower on the second floor, you know, put them in a room on the exterior room. Now, when your truck pulls up and hits the parking brake and here, hit your stopwatch, jump off, do everything, veterinary search, grab your ladder off, go up, put your mask on, go up, shut the door, search, get the mannequin over, pull. Now, stop the watch. Take a look at the time. That's the time that that fire is growing in intensity and doubling every minute, right? Now, there's a point in time for it. I believe, I wholeheartedly believe that. If you can make that grab, get that person out, who cares if the building burns? But you can't play God. You can't say, well, I'm going to save this person and let the other four go. You know, your, your biggest impact is pulling the line off. A lot of times rescue is, is the line. But once again, this goes into the whole circumstances dictate your actions on a fire ground. The three things that you mentioned, a game plan, experienced fire officers, and training officer, or excuse me, a good training. Um, that's what you need for a fire to go well. Is that what you were saying? I'm saying those are the those are the three elements that really bolster and enhance your success on a fire ground. Right. So it really underscores that lack of experience really underscores how important training is. Obviously, service delivery is number one, but service delivery is so dependent upon preparation and a clear game plan. That informs the training division and the company officers on what they need to be, the standard that they need to be training to is so critical. And again, I guess it just underscores in my mind how important it is that if the training division is understaffed or um, the scope of work is large, how important it is to um, get clarity from the organization as to what the priorities are. And to find creative ways to, as you mentioned, um, how can I augment some of these efforts? How can I, how can I make sure that these, that the vision of the department, the vision of the training division is being carried out on the shift through these other captains? This idea that you posed in those training captains, I think it really underscores that because we're not going to, with all the experience going down, experience levels going down, that so much turnover in the fire service and just, not having the fires to get all that experience, it just underscores how important it is that the training that the training that we're given is frequent and it's realistic and it's addressing the things that we know we're going to have to do, which should be in our game plan. We should have a game plan that we are training to. And I think that really starts at the top. We've seen these fire departments that have a training culture and we have these fire departments that just want to exist. And if you're one of those, I'm not here to, you know, put you down. I'm just here to tell you, 
that, you know, you're doing yourself a disservice by not having that culture of training. Um, we don't get the experience and I, I, and I can't replace experience. You know, I've told people this, you know, three in the morning when you pull up and your heart's going a thousand miles an hour and you're trying to make a decision, I can't teach that in a lab. I can try to teach that in a lab, but I can't, I can't, you know, in a burn tower, teach you interior benchmarking because I can't burn furniture, nor will I. But these are experienced things that you're going to have to get on the fire ground. Um, however, training has got to be a part of what we do just because of our lack of experience. It doesn't always make up for it, but it has to be there. But it starts at the top. You know, I've got as a fire chief, I have a million things a day that I throw at our people, PR, training, you know, uh, maintenance. Uh, I'm not I mean, more than training uh, inspections, hydrants. You know, there's so much on a daily docket. But if you can just say, hey, look, these are important. But I want you to prioritize what you do as training, because what we do is we go to fires, we go to EMS calls, and our main concern is the public and you, you know, and, and that's where the, the training priority has to come. Um, yeah, I liked early on, you talked about an aggressive or and not aggressive. You said, you said safe, effective, and efficient firefighting. And so one of the things I wanted to ask you about, what are your thoughts about the how do how do you describe a firefighting um, ethos that incorporates safety? Can you be an aggressive, safe department in a dangerous profession like firefighting? So you can never remove all the risk of what we do. You know, I always say, you know, the, the, the bravest day in your in your career really is the day you put your badge on. Every other day is just another commitment of the actions that is expected upon you, upon your community, upon your fire service. Uh, but I will tell you that, yes, you can be aggressive and safe, but here's how you do it. You have to be prepared. I, I you know, the, the catch word today is aggressive, aggressive, aggressive. Yeah, I'm aggressive. And I look at somebody and they're, you know, they're not mentally there. They're not physically there. Their preparedness level is horrible. Yeah. I'm going to be aggressive. I'm, no, you're, you can't be aggressive because you don't have a system and you have to have a system that backs up your aggressiveness. If you are prepared, if you train, if you keep your body correct, if you are mentally correct, you know your job, and you know that you have a system that backs you up, that's what I want. I want aggressive firefighters, but I need that safety blanket in place. And how does that safety blanket happen? It happens by accounting for all the functionality on the fire ground. I know that I can go search above floor. What, what, what gives you the ability to search above a fire? One, I have a, I have a hose line in place protecting the stairwell. Two, I, I know my people know what they're doing above, and I have an egress out of that second floor. I got window, I've got ladders started at every window. That allows me to be aggressive, but you can. But you just have to have a system and, and just be ready to go. Aggressiveness doesn't happen overnight. Yeah, I love that. Aggression, aggressive firefighting starts before you ever got onto the fire, before you ever hit the fire ground. That's a, I like that. Um, we talked about system limitations. We've talked about um, system deficiencies. Kind of touched on a, on a couple of uh, tactics that I want to just address with you quickly. Having read parts of your book, I, I know that you address um, recognizing limitations at the company level. How important it is that a company officer, when determining tactics, whether it be VES, like you said, or searching above the fire floor or searching ahead of the nozzle. These are all what I consider to be high risk tactics, potentially. 
Um, and we've talked about them. We've referred to them and all of them in this conversation today. Can you talk to me a little bit about the role of the company officer in making those kinds of decisions and recognizing the staffing limitations? Because frequently staffing is, is just, we talk about numbers, right? But I've, it's clear in your book that you identify that staffing limitations are not simply about numbers. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Absolutely. There are certain functions on the fire ground that cannot be tackled by the person that's been out of the fire academy for two months. Once again, I go back to I can't teach interior benchmarking in the fire academy. You just can't do it. You can try to put them in a burn room all day long. But until you get into that fire ground, you say, oh, the, the, the smoke level's coming down. It's hot. It, it, the black is coming down really quick. Well, you know, you're in, in an imminent flashover. But a person who's never been in that situation doesn't realize that. So I always go back to I, the vendor search or even the uh, oriented search above. If I'm, a, if I'm a fire captain and I turn around and I see my 15-year um, you know, veteran, I know that I can go above a fire floor with that person and orient and say, you're going to go in that room. I'm going to go in this room. Let's meet in the hallway. Even in zero visibility conditions, you can do that. If you know what you're doing, if you can go around the room real quick and you're oriented and you come back and like, hey, anything in there? Nope. I know that I can I can make that upstairs search double time than that two month. I can't turn my two month rookie. Oh, I, I have to be on them all the time. I have to be next to them. In the vendor search, I don't think I'm throwing my two month person up in that window. I might be the one going up in that window, or you know I'm not going to bite off as many functions on a fire floor that I can with that person because I know that it's not only a teaching experience, but it's also more of a hand holding experience. And it's nothing against the two month rookie. It's just you have limitations, uh, but you have far greater capacity with a veteran. Again, underscoring a training culture where you're getting out every day and familiarizing yourself with your own, but your crew's limitations, skills and limitations, identifying areas of weakness for areas of focus. Um, Because if you, especially if people moving around a lot in the system, you don't, you might not know, even know who's working with you that day, you know? which is another challenge in a, in a, in a bigger system where, where you don't have the same familiarity with skill levels. But um, one thing I want to touch on just quickly, because we've talked about all these challenges is the, is the uh, volunteer department or the combination department, because we've talked about all big scope of work, a lot of work to do, limited resources to get it done. And, it just says so the fire doesn't care if you um, the fire's going to do what it's what it does right it doesn't care how many people you show up on the engine it doesn't care if you're volunteer it doesn't care if your career I think that the challenges facing a, a combination or a volunteer department are are so difficult with having to um, to get the level of training that you need in order to stay proficient I think it's difficult anywhere you're at um, what are your thoughts about that? You know, I, I, I'm, I've been blessed in the fact that, you know, I, I, I've always taken for granted that I always have staffing, you know, in a paid department. Um, I've operated a little bit in a um, combination for a short time period and, you know, relying and it wasn't, we could still get apparatus out the door and we supplement our staffing with, with the, the auxiliary staff. But being in a full volunteer fire department, I, I take my hat off all day long for the gentlemen that make it work. And I've seen some departments on the East Coast that operate 
they blow our socks off. I mean, it's, it's amazing how they, how they can make it work, their training levels, because they, you know, it's a belongingness up there. You know, they, 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 they feel like it's an identity. So training is just what they do. Um, mm-hmm. you know, it, but it's tough, you know, if you have a, a job, how do you, and you have a family, how do you make training? I mean, right now, you know, we're trying to make more availability of virtual, um, you know, virtual doesn't tackle it all though. I'll be honest. It just supplements. I mean, you really got to get your hands on in this job, uh, to, to make that happen. But, um, you know, the training aspect, um, you know, I've seen some training, um, volunteer departments around here that do it really well because they make it, um, an event, you know, training is an event. You come to training, you learn something. And then afterwards, you know, it's an event where you get together, there's brotherhood. Um, but you have to really have some kind of incentive, um, to, to take time away from a family to, to make that happen. Um, you know, not only training, but accountability on a fire ground, these guys, Ooh, I give it to them. You know, I know what I have responding on my daily staffing sheet, um, there, you know, just who's available, who's not working, uh, yeah. The technology helps out with that. I've seen this I Am Responding app where people can punch in, hey, I'm coming to the firehouse, and there's a board out there that says firefighter one, two, and three are coming, so don't leave right away. Um, you know, take a right. couple seconds away for them or what have you. And then there's some departments that, you know, they show up on the fire ground, and then they have assignment sheets there. They have tags. They're like, this is your position when you get here. But the accountability faction, wow, that, that's got to be a challenge. Yeah. I think it really underscores the the need – for some of the things we've been talking about today, a clear game plan, right? Clear standards that you know you're trying to operate to so that you can use your time in training, your limited time, especially in, in a volunteer world, most effectively, most efficiently. It's very, we have very clear standards and expectations that we're training to and how can we tackle this so that we can make sure that every minute is spent uh, working towards those objectives. But it's a, it's a big, big task. Um, it's been a pleasure to have you on the show today, Chief. I'm really happy that you came to talk with us today. Um, and I know that you, we, we've referenced your book, and we'll put a link to that in the show notes. And then I know that you have another project going that I thought maybe you might like to mention before I ask the yes. final question. So we have a manuscript uh, in review right now with Fire Engineering Books and Videos. Um, we, we haven't settled on a title yet, but it's really what we're talking about. Uh, currently, it's called the Non-Traditional Truck Company. Uh, I've co-authored it with a uh, truck company captain out of Lexington, Kentucky, Arthur Ashley. Um, he is a professional fire captain slash truckie. And uh, he's got the reason why I sought him out is because he's got that truck attitude. He's got that culture. And he knows what it takes to be a truck captain to help us transfer that to how we do it in our environments without trucks. Um, and really I'm the, I'm the policy geek on all that. So, uh, he does all the fun stuff, all the fun stories. I throw a couple stories in, but it's more a policy on my side, but our, our book is going to have a lot of good stories, a lot of tricks of the trade. We've uh, got a lot of people from around the industry who've given us stories, uh, and also, um, how to set up these standard operating procedures, um, how to prioritize your fire ground, um, you know, how, how to train too. So, um, we hope it has it all in it. And that book that you have out now, Suburban Fire Tactics, um, it goes into a lot of these topics, too. So people that are interested in diving deeper on some of these topics will have that available in the show notes so they can find that. The final question I have for you today is just one that I kind of like to ask uh, most of the guests. And it's just we've talked about benchmarks today. 
What are your personal benchmarks for a successful life or a life well lived? You know, it's a, that's a great question. Uh, you know, sometimes we dive so much in our careers, we, we lose focus of what's important. Uh, I'll break that up in two answers. I'll give you a professional answer and then a private. Professionally, um, I, I want to leave an organization better than I found it. I know that's a scripted answer, and it's it's true. Um, you know, the 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 toughest job I have is looking uh, on pinning day, pinning a kid, and looking at their parents and saying, "Hey, I promise to keep your kid safe." I truly take that that uh, that oath seriously that I give. Um, you know, my goal is to retire here and not have one person hurt badly or or you know, line of duty death. Um, and also to, to succession planning, one of the most, um, the biggest successes in my life was looking back at my companies and seeing all the people that were promoted behind me. And I, I like to think I had a little part in that. Um, but, uh, really it's, it's to make a mark on the fire service and to just, just put some, I, I mean, I'm, when people use our, do you get offended when they use the word suburban fire tactics? Absolutely not. I don't own it. I'm just giving you my experiences, you know, what I've seen and hopefully it helps somebody out because we are under the same plight. Um, but really just to make a mark and two is to, you know, just have a, 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 a you know, retire someday. And uh, I have four children and hopefully wanting to see them uh, successful and to, um, go off into the sunset and, uh, hopefully live a couple years, but, uh, everybody needs to keep two things in mind, PTSD and cancer, protect yourself, be, be ready. You know, um, don't be afraid to admit if you've got some problems, go talk to people and please, please take those precautions. It's not cool to have dirty stuff. I thought all the time, you know, it's cool to have your gear dirty, uh, where, you know, look like that soot all over your face, but that's not winning any battles. Burnt fire gear and dirty faces aren't tactics. They're just ways of creating problems later on in the future. Well, thank you very much, Chief. Thank you, Rob. As we wrap up, we'd love to hear from you. If you found value in today's episode, please take 10 seconds to leave us a five-star rating and review. It not only helps other fire instructors and training officers discover the show, but it also helps us to create better content for you. Simply scroll to the bottom in your favorite podcast app and hit rate and review. Your feedback means the world to us. Thank you for being a part of our community, and we'll catch you in the next episode.